All right, welcome to the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, I was just explaining to you off mic there about uh, the joys of recording podcasts and how when you hit a record button, it means that any like work that was getting done in or around the house will immediately just happen at the same time. Does that does that happen to you in your experience as a podcaster? Well, I mean, literally, it's happened just now. I opened my um, I opened the window in this room because this is this room's at the front of the house, so it, it's even the slightest bit of sun it turns into a greenhouse. Mm-hmm. So I came in and thought I'll open I'll open the window, and literally while my hand was on the handle, the um, our rag and bone man started coming around <laughs> with with a trumpet and shouting, and <laughs> it felt yeah, it felt very uh, very timely, definitely. Followed by like a wagon with some plague doctors ringing bells, saying "Bring out your dead," stuff like that. That's it, and I, I was worried. I was going to have to explain what a rag and bowman is for like two thirds of the audience. I'm sure. <laughs> no, I used to be one. It was it was my old trade. Uh, so, um, no, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Chris. I've been listening to your podcast. Uh, we're going to talk more about that. We're going to talk about uh, well, how we discovered you. We advert for a game that seems to be in the uh, in the works at the moment or about to be published. But uh, first things first, like it, it's always nice to to just go back and, and sort of explore someone's origin story in the hobby. So could you talk to us about a young Chris and how how this all came to be, you know, how you got into this hobby in the first place? Yeah, so I think it's probably a similar story for a lot of people, especially in the UK, which was um, my first exposure to anything related to like war games or, or even sort of tabletop gaming, I guess, beyond like Monopoly was um it was like show and tell day and one of the boys from the year above who um obviously seemed very cool and mature to my i was like 10 years old nine years old maybe um and one of the boys in the year above had bought in a load of white dwarf magazines a load of miniatures um and it was kind of not like anything i'd really seen before like it's it's easy to just um to joke about like sounding like an old man but it's in in a pre-internet age I, I would have never sort of seen anything like this before or knew that these kind of games existed or or even that these kind of like this sort of creative avenue existed really um so yeah straight after that I was kind of hooked in um to the games workshop um treadmill I guess um work, so I got my first sort of starter box that year and just kind of it, it it took a long time before I realized that there were games other than Games Workshop games, which I guess is their strategy. So it, it did work on me um, for for a good long time. Um, but then, yeah. So so after after a long period of playing Games Workshop games, it kind of went into RPGs as I got kind of older, and um, eventually sort of returning to miniatures during during the lockdown. Actually, that was kind of my sort of second reawakening into into miniatures really uh when when there's nothing else to do um it suddenly suddenly means you you get reflective on uh finding things that are good indoor hobbies um and then yeah so i've I've just done a really quick speed run of my life which is which is very depressing uh to get to age 38 from age 10 so quickly (laughs) 
It sounds like we're about the same age, and I mean, it doesn't because th- when you say 38, I could identify my age, so it doesn't sound like, you know, we pretty much are the same age. <laughs> um, the, there's no ambiguity there. But uh, what? so what year was that that you were talking about, uh, the boy bringing the stuff into school then? What, would that have been like 94, 95-ish? Yeah, I think it was summer 95, I think. Um, it's It feels very clear in my head because it was, I remember sort of it being one of the um, one of the last days of term at school. So before the summer holidays. So I think it's naturally associated in my head with a very sort of happy time. So maybe, maybe that's what sort of drew me in. Um, and sort of spending a lot of that summer, you know, like I say, looking over White Dwarf magazines, saving up pocket money to buy like 10 little plastic clan rats um, and doing a very bad job of painting them. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the problem with being 10 years old is um, a, a a Warhammer fantasy like starter set might as well have been a new car as far as I'm concerned. So like this wasn't something I could just buy with my pocket money. It would have taken forever to save. And it, it would have taken more willpower than I ever had to actually save up that much money to buy a, a starter box for like £30 or whatever it was back then. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a long wait until Christmas that year. And then Christmas was when I, um, yeah, got got onto the Warhammer fantasy train. I, I like the thought that that wee boy came in with stuff and you were saying he seemed very cool and mature he didn't get like his head kicked in or that when he unveiled his warhammer collection like it was no it was because I, I think at, i think at the time um he he was kind of like i think uh, as in my head because when i was 10 years old when you're 10 and you're looking at sort of a 12 year old that 12 year old looks like an adult, I think. When when you when you when you're younger, the, the next year up, they seem like these giants compared to you. So in my head, he was like the coolest kid, leather jacket, smoking, uh, <laughs> and uh, I don't think that was the case at all. But um, but yeah, it felt like it was. Oh, this is a thing that um, a certain type of uh, cool kid can do. When in reality, I think they were probably just a bit of a nerd, like like so many of us that go into it back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it felt. Um, I, I I don't I don't remember there being any teasing about. It. I think I think at the time we were just generally quite impressed. Yeah, do you remember uh, your first trip to a games workshop store? Was there one in your town, or like do, do you remember how sort of that went? Yeah, so the nearest one. So I grew up in uh, Staffordshire, um, in a very small town in Staffordshire, um, sort of about an hour north of Birmingham, and the the closest games workshop was in. Um, Dudley at the time um, just outside Birmingham and again it it felt like an eternity asking my mum and dad if we could go to one of these games workshop shops Um, because again I'm I'm not going and getting the train on my own at age 10 and I remember there being like a huge build-up to go in there and taking a friend with me and when we got there it's it's the classic tale of a very enthusiastic red shirt employee uh, coming over and and telling me that today was special because they pushed together all of the tables and they were doing a giant Warhammer fantasy battle and they were getting like multiple people on each side. So it, so it felt like I'd come on the right day. And I remember him sort of saying, okay, well, you can be in charge of like these two units over here. So you've got like a dragon and some, I think they're like dark elf crossbowmen, I think. Um, and he said, right, well, and, and we'll come back to you when it's your turn. So I sort of stood there looking at the miniatures, waiting while everyone else did things I don't understand down the table and rolled lots of dice. And then he sort of came back to me and said, right, so you've got, you've got your dragon here and you can, you can fly to any of these places on the board. You can fly over to attack this, this cannon or 
these knights over here. So I said, well, let's let's go and attack the cannon. That seems that, that's that's high strategic thought for for a ten year old. Uh, so we'll we'll take out the artillery. So flew in front of the cannon, landed, and sort of ineffectively blew fire towards the cannon. And um, anyone who remembers these old editions of um, Warmer Fantasy, uh, this was a, a Hellblaster Volleygun that I put my dragon in front of. And on the other player's turn, there was lots of dice rolling and firing everything out of this cannon, and it, my, my dragon was destroyed. And it, it sounds like this would be a terrible introduction, but the fact that I still remember that story after, um, you know, coming on for 30 years, um, it, 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 it did stick with me, and it kind of proved the point that you can have these kind of exciting moments coming out of these games, even if, even if it all goes wrong. So you talked about clan rats then, so Skaven, they were your, your sort of first army that you collected. How did that kind of progress? I think the so, so I remember in that first trip to the games workshop the the um the guy who came over in the red shirt said um said like right are you are you 40k or fantasy and I sort of said uh, I I don't really know yet because I've I've only been reading white dwarf this is my first time here and he said uh, what's cooler swords or guns and I so, love yeah, that I question I, said, I think I said swords um and he was like fantasy and, and it felt like I couldn't argue with him it felt like it was some kind of like like this was my destiny now yeah, he'd annoyed you there. yeah. <laughs> yeah that's it um so I kind of shunned 40k for quite a long time not not strictly because of that but um I was definitely more drawn to the fantasy and I think obviously I'd seen like I'd seen things like with dwarves and elves and knights before uh, and like orcs, uh, even if they were a bit different than what I'd seen before. But the the, the Skaven were like something completely new. Um, they, they felt like, in a weird way, they felt kind of like the underdogs because it felt like they, they almost didn't quite fit with the other ones. They seemed like they were this kind of slightly different tone. Um, and also they, I was sold by the, the Doom wheel. The fact that there's like a giant hamster wheel uh, appealed, appealed to me when I was 10 and it still appeals to me today. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that, that army book is one of the first things I bought. And I, I probably spent more time reading that army book than I ever actually spent playing uh, battles <laughs> with the Skaven. So did you, uh, did you sort of build that Skaven army over the next few years then? Uh, did you collect anything else in that time? Did you play any of the other games? Well, I, I sort of gradually collected the Skaven armies. Like I say, I had the starter set um, later on, so we, we used those armies a bit to play. But the, the problem with Skaven is if you're just getting started, and certainly back then, it was quite an expensive army to collect because there was there were the plastic clan rats, which were quite cheap, but everything else was metal, and you needed quite a lot of everything in Skaven because they were also cheap. Um, so it ended up being a weirdly built army that was... Half of it was sort of plastic clan rats in single pose... And then there was just a lot of big stuff because then when it would come to like a birthday or Christmas, I, I'd say, oh, I'd like a screaming bell or I'd like a doom wheel for my birthday. I'm not going to ask for six blister packs of plague monks and paint all them. I, it was it was very much all or nothing. And it, it yeah, it, I, I enjoy collecting that army, but I feel like I, I, I would make a better job of it today with all the variety of plastic that's available. Um, because of that, at the time, we, we did get kind of drawn into the other games that were around. So like the Warhammer quests, um, you know, Necromunda, um, even Gorkamorka, anything that was smaller and a bit easier to kind of put together and get onto the table. We, we generally found that would, that fitted into our, even as children who should have lots of spare time, it fitted into our lifestyles a bit more easily. It didn't feel like this great undertaking where we had to, Asked my mum if we could use the dining table for a few days while we played out a Warhammer Fantasy battle. 
Um, and yeah, Warhammer Quest was probably the one that we that got the most play. Um, there was definitely sort of a summer when we played that sort of, it felt like sort of every day working through a campaign there. And that, that's always stuck with me. Before I, I go on to talk more about like your hobby journey and that, there was a wee point that you brought up that I just wanted to pick on uh, about, you know, pre-internet. So when, when men of our age, that sounds like a funny thing to say, <laughs> um, you know, we talk about uh, getting into the hobby. There's always like unique circumstances that have happened to put us there in that one position, that one day where you encountered something and that leads you off in that whole direction. And th- there's the argument, I suppose, that... Uh, you know, it was, it was quite fortunate that that happened because we didn't have the internet then. Whereas if you've got the internet now, you could be immediately exposed to something like that because you're maybe semi-interested in that genre of thing anyway. But on the other hand, like the internet is such a busy place. There's so much things that want your attention. I wonder, like, is it is it now more or less likely someone will encounter, you know, Games Workshop or the hobby, the wider hobby, um, than it was before. Is it is it necessarily easier now? Do you think for people? I'm not sure. I think I think it's probably easier in the sense that if you're a little bit curious, you can just go and you know Google it, and you can have all the information that you could ever want, and videos of people playing it and people talking about it. Whereas back then, it did feel like. Uh, sorry, I feel like I'm I'm I feel like I'm physically aging as we have this conversation because I'm aware <laughs> of how much of an old man I sound like. But I think I think back then there was if. Like I say, you had you had White Dwarf, and you had like your couple of friends in my case who were into it as well, Um, and that was kind of your entire forum for this. So, like when the new magazine, new issue of White Dwarf would come out, it felt like you were getting lots of new ideas. Whereas I feel like now you could just jump headlong into this huge online world of people who are incredibly enthusiastic, like far more enthusiastic than you could possibly be about this game, and. and yeah, it's interesting to think about whether that would have changed things, about whether some of that kind of mystery would have been lost a little bit. But I think I think you're right that the difference is that people who don't get that kind of fortunate, you know, coincidental moment of somebody introducing them to it, for those people, it's it's that wouldn't have happened at all. Um, they, they they actually do have a window into it rather than sort of waiting for that chance. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I get nostalgic for is just the the depth back then like um i'm i'm currently rereading all my old white dwarfs i just decided to go back through them so i'm like 94 95 then now you know uh, uh-huh. the years i mean um looking through these old white dwarfs and it's amazing how much of that stuff how much of these articles and little editorials are still burned into my memory because i must have read these magazines i wouldn't like to say how many times i've went cover to cover on them whereas these days a piece of content a lot of it's here and gone. Even a physical magazine, I like to get miniature war games magazines because I like having a physical thing to read. But I, I will, for most parts, just be skimming it a lot. Uh, whereas back then, I don't know if it was to do with an age thing as well. You know, you just had this finite amount of stuff to, to keep you occupied. But I just, I like that thought of, you know, I'm really in depth on this. I'm reading this cover to cover. I, I pretty much know everything that was in this magazine. And yeah. I, I don't know if you're the same age these days because there's just so much. There's the fire hose of content online. Will anyone ever go that in-depth now? Possibly, mm. but... And you would read the articles about games that you kind of... You weren't even playing. Like, mm. I remember when I came in, it was just at the end of um, Epic... Uh, like, b- before the Epic 40,000, like, third edition thing came back. 
it was just as the death knells of the sort of i guess like second edition um epic were going on so there would just be occasionally be like a, a weird article about this game that none of us were really interested in mm-hmm. and we didn't really see very much of in the shops but i still remember reading them i can tell you all about um you know nurgle demon engines and the slanish knight titan things because because yeah you, you would read it because the, the world was engaging enough that the, the sort of the world of the game was engaging enough that it, it made me want to read about these things that i really knew was never knew i was never going to play in mm-hmm. um whereas now I, I suppose i would just have gone and um, absorbed everything from the skaven section of like a wiki somewhere yeah and yeah. It's, it's it's just a different type of engagement isn't it Aye. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of romanticising it, but I knew, like, the Argos catalogue back to front. Like, it was just, <laughs> like I say, you had so little content, you, you just, uh, you probably read things. You know, the t- my mum's TV Times magazine, let me have a look at that. What's in the letters page? Um, yeah, the back so, of the cereal box. Yeah, exactly. Sitting in the toilet with your toothpaste <laughs> tube, just reading the ingredients. Sodium laurel sulfate, always remember that. We're not painting <laughs> a very compelling picture for the younger people. No, I know. They weren't the 90s great. <laughs> um, so, like, you, you talked about, or you touched on a wee while ago there, about um, sort of coming back into miniatures and that during COVID, like I think a lot of folks did. So how did they, I mean, was it a complete break from the hobby? Were you still doing certain things? like how did that all sort of pan out so i probably kind of stopped like i think the last time i would have bought miniatures was like when i was i guess like just before i went away to like university maybe maybe a little bit before then and i think then partially just money i guess is 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 less you have less expendable uh income or or rather your expendable income is going other places when yeah. you're kind of an older teenager and, uh, and a young adult but then it, it so it and I was getting more into RPGs then, so I think I was more in that space. Um, but I always like kept a little eye on what was happening, just out of interest to see like, oh, what what are the, what do the miniatures look like these days from like for this game? Um, and it, yeah, it, it was more of just a kind of I, I would occasionally look in from the sidelines, and I think around the time, yeah, just before kind of COVID and the first lockdown, I think I was feeling like. So at the time I was, I was, you know, designing RPGs and I was playing lots of board games and I was becoming more interested in going back into that miniature gaming space. And it kind of, in, in an unfortunate way, it presented a real opportunity where it was, it was my birthday not long after the first lockdown started and someone gave me like a voucher for Amazon, I think it was. And I thought, well, I'm going to buy myself something, something to actually keep me busy during, during lockdown. And... And yeah, I, I picked up just a couple of plastic kits. I picked up a kit of uh, Gene Steeler hybrids and a kit of, um, what's the actual word I'm trying to say? Uh, the Skitarii Vanguard, um, the Admech guys. Um, and I tried kit bashing because I was always, I always loved the idea of converting miniatures. I always used to look at those miniatures in, in White Dwarf that people had converted. And like, even if it was just a simple like head swap. But whenever I tried to do it back then, it was like, it was literally like trying to cut lead with like a, a, a little rubbish standing knife that I found in my dad's drawer. And I, I could just never do it. So now that plast- now that they had all these kits in plastic with multi-parts, I thought I'll just buy them just to do a bit of kit bashing. And and I, I'm not I'm not, I'm not going to bother like playing anything. And then I thought, well, I'll just get some terrain because it'd be nice to have some terrain to just put them on. So they just look nice. <laughs> and then it sort of deteriorated from there and I, I fell straight back into the well and um 
and I've, I've still been very sensible in terms of how far I go back in. But um, yeah, the main thing is I've been looking into the the wealth of games outside of Games Workshop. And that's been kind of one of the things that's been really excited about coming back into it. You talked there about um, so your RPG background and writing games and that. So if we go back to, you know, what was the genesis of that? I think it was, so it was around the, the this was when third edition D&D was being like developed. So this was, I think, 2000. It was when I was kind of falling off the back of, of miniature stuff. I was So I guess I was like 15. So I, I thought I was too cool for this stuff now. And sorry, it sounds ridiculous to say I was too cool for miniatures. So I went into RPGs. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but I guess it's, it's a different kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and the um, I remember reading all the, I, I, I don't know how I fell into it, but I remember reading some of the, like the blogs that the designers of third edition D&D were writing. And I thought, oh, well, it's, it's a new edition of Dungeons and Dragons, which I, I sort of knew about, but I didn't know anyone who played it. And it was this kind of slightly alien thing off on the sidelines um, to the to the games that I had played. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll follow this along and I'll, I'll go and get the core books for this. So I got the core books for third edition, which they, they were separated by like a month. So you had to buy the player's handbook, wait for a month. Then by the Dungeon Master's Guide, wait for a month, and then the Monster Manual. Um, what felt like a very long wait between them. And that kind of is what got me started. And even though I'm looking back now, there's a lot about that game I don't like. It's very complicated. It's very much, uh, it tries to have like a rule for everything. And even the specifics of how the rules work don't really appeal to me that much now. But what got me excited was very much like absorbing all that stuff from white dwarf it felt like there was so much like world here that could be explored and you didn't need to have like the miniature to do it um so if if i wanted to include a you know a a huge black dragon in one of my games i didn't need to go out and buy a a 50 pound miniature from games workshop made out of lead and super glue it together and paint it and that was very appealing at the time um as well as obviously the whole rpg style of play where you're not as bound by the rules. You can choose to do whatever you want to do. Um, but it, but it, was, it was the idea of running the games especially that appealed to me, the idea of like creating your own worlds and creating your own like dungeons to be explored and things like that. Um, so yeah, that, that was where I got my start. And then uh, being as thrifty as I am, after that I kind of thought, well, there must be some free games online that you can get. And I really started to dig into like free games that people have made and put up on forums or message boards or websites. And um, And that's where I found sort of the rules light side of things that really started to appeal to me. Mm. So you, you're playing these games and then, uh, you know, how do you transition to start to, to making your own or writing your own? I think it started, to, to be honest, I, I, I always I always use this this anecdote, and but I, I think it still stands up, which is that when I was, not long after I got into miniatures, someone, like a, an older cousin, gave me an old copy of Hero Quest that they had knocking around. And they said, oh, you like this kind of thing. Here you go. This is, I, I, I had this when I was younger. I don't want it anymore. And, you know, it was great, but it was missing the rule book. You know, it had the rule book, but it didn't have like the adventure book that actually told you what the scenarios were. So I had this big board and all these pieces and I knew how the, how like you could attack and how you moved and things like that, but I didn't know what you actually did. So me and my friend would just take turns essentially being the dungeon master and just making stuff up as we went around. And I've joked that that's how I sort of started in RPG design because from then on it kind of showed me that, yeah, you can just kind of make up 
your own stuff to go with these games if you don't quite like how it works. But the first kind of serious attempts that I made were around that time when I was discovering that lots of other people were like putting out free games because I thought, well, if other people are doing this, of course, of course I'll be able to do it straight away. So I'm going to I'm gonna make something and it's going to be brilliant first time. And uh, I don't think they were brilliant first time. There, there are lots of sort of failed games I have tucked away in my Google Documents folder. Um, but I, just just the process of tinkering around with the rules and stuff was sort of innately fun to me anyway. Mm-hmm. Our question of the month for May 2024 is what rules have you created or adapted to improve your favourite gaming system? This might be a homebrew rule or something you've ported over from another game. The point is you tried it, it worked well and you kept on using it. Head on over to bedroombattlefields.com forward slash voicemail to submit your answer. That's bedroombattlefields.com forward slash voicemail. And now back to the show. So what were some of the first uh, games that you created and put out there and, and kind of got a reception for then? Well, you can you can probably guess that the first attempt was, I think, the same as everyone, which is uh, Dungeons and Dragons is pretty good, but I reckon I can do it better. Um, so it was a game called, it, it went through various names. It was called Underworlds and Overworlds at one point, I think. And then I think The Adventurer's Tale was where I kind of left it. And it was a very stripped down rules light fantasy adventure game, but there was absolutely nothing interesting in there. There was there was no reason for anyone to be interested in this over any of the other sort of simplified versions of D anD. Um, and then from there, I kind of started to discover more. Um, I sort of discover more styles of RPG that people were making, and realize that there it didn't have to just be like a D anD D knockoff. So I had one that was around like urban exploration. Like, you know, you see these people that go into like abandoned warehouses and stuff. Mm. And I made a very, not, not complex, but I really spent a lot of time working on the system for like, well, how far can you jump and how quickly can you climb? And I had all this ready. And then I sat down and I realized there's no like game here. This is just rolling some dice and saying you, you, you go into a room and there's a, there's a jump. Are you going to make it? And you roll some dice. And you say, no, you didn't make it. Um, and that that's one that's always stuck with me because that kind of really cemented in my head that you can spend all this time on the rules, but the rules aren't the game. Like mm-hmm. the, the game is like, well, why am I doing this? And why do the players care? And what's the what does the actual play at the table look like? That that That's more important to me even than like, well, what dice are we rolling and what are my percentage chances to succeed? So talk to us a wee bit about the period, you know, in between this and you actually getting back into the miniature hobby, like when you started to see some sort of success with your rules writing in your games. Yeah, so bet- between then, actually, the um, the big thing was that I, I eventually started to get a bit of a handle on making games that actually worked. Um, and the one that I did in, I started writing it in 2011 um, and released it in 2014. Uh, it was called Into the Odd, which was a very sort of minimalist it, it it is still drawing on some elements of D, but it had a kind of weird industrial horror kind of vibe to it and sort of extremely stripped back rules um and that one was one that people actually seemed to like and people actually seemed interested in so um i then did a follow-up to that called electric bastion land and that was successful enough that i was able to um at the time my, my day job was winding up anyway so i was a bit of a, cr- a crossroads in terms of employment and i thought you know what this is an opportunity to try see if i can do this as a career 
Mm. Um, so after that book, um, I've been full-time in uh, game design ever since. And that, that was 2020. So yeah, just, just over three years now. Mm. So that we, we arrive at that point where like you're getting back into miniatures and that, and then, you know, I've, I've recently, uh, like I said earlier, I read the miniature board games magazine. So I see an advert for a game, uh, the doomed and, uh, it looks really interesting. I think I start looking into that, uh, found out, a po- you know, a podcast there and stuff like that, that you're, that you're on. Uh, so talk to us about this game and, and, you know, its origins and what we can expect from it. So the Doom kind of started because because of those miniatures that I started kitbashing together. And I, like I say, I, I did them from some, some Warhammer 40k kits. And then I also went and bought like some random bits from like bits box online. Um, and I found some old like kits that I had like lying around from like in my mum and dad's cellar from when I was like a teenager. So I, I put some of those in there as well. And I was kitbashing all this stuff together and there are lots of games now that sort of this take this miniature agnostic approach where you can kind of bring whatever miniatures you want to the table um but i couldn't like help myself thinking well i'll just tinker around and see if i can make something that i can use these miniatures for um so it started off as kind of a very simple just like we'll do like a warband skirmish thing uh sort of inspired by like the uh the ink 28 stuff um some of those rule sets and and it kind of escalated from there because then it went from well i've got these two warbands but i've also kitbashed some big horrible monsters and i want to use those so i had these sort of initially these monsters were kind of almost like random encounters coming into the battle kind of similar to you get in like frostgrave and stargrave but then they started to become more and more the focus of the game to the point where now it's uh competing warbands sort of hunting down these these big horrors so you're you're fighting the other warband but you're also both fighting this big kind of boss monster sort of thing almost mm. um, and it might have some minions as well it, it was all it all came out of necessity really which I, I think is where a lot of the best ideas come from because it was based around making something that was an excuse to kitbash more miniatures and uh and an excuse to use the miniatures that i'd already thrown together so yeah that's what it ended up being it ended up being a very very rules light um sort of warband versus warband versus monster uh, style game what uh, what's your kind of ethos where we're writing a game, you know, and, and the experience that you want to give to the player? Do you have any sort of concrete thoughts on that? I mean, presumably you do, given that you make them, but just <laughs> interested to hear them. Well, like I said, the the thing that, that that story about my dragon getting blown up by a cannon when I was 10 years old, like in my very first game, has stuck with me a lot more than perhaps some other battles where it's been sort of perhaps it's been a very closely knit thing and it's been kind of back and forth and it's kind of been a bit more subtle if you like so i i think i do lean towards having just enough kind of chaos and drama in there so that it still feels like you've got control over what you're trying to do but then you'll get these little moments where it's almost like the camera like snaps to slow motion for a minute and zooms in and you get these moments like where you get like critical hit tables in RPGs sometimes like spiral into this kind of chain reaction of other things. And, and that, that's what I wanted to have. I wanted to have a game that ran quickly most of the time, but then you it sort of slowed down for these moments that created these kind of storytelling kind of beats almost. Um, and yeah, like I've said with, with RPGs that it's, I've always wanted to make games that I only try and make a game if it's something that I actually want. 
I don't think there's any point trying to make a game for other people. So I'm, I didn't want to like identify a gap in the market and say, well, this is what I'm going to go for. It, it was very much because I wanted a game that really pushed up against the limits of like rules light. So these aren't necessarily all revolutionary things but like there's no measuring in the game um so you don't need to have any measuring uh there's no stack there's no tracking of ongoing conditions so if uh other games you get things like a, a, a model might be like fatigued or um poisoned or distracted there can be all number of these tokens that you put all over the board and like wound counters and stuff like that i wanted to avoid that so there's no tracking of individual uh things that anything that happens kind of resolves straight away and then you get back to just being able to focus on the miniatures on the table and uh no so that's no no measuring no stacking and no no so no, me- no measuring no tracking and no stacking is the, other, the third one uh which is not having lots of plus ones and minus ones that affect the same role so every type of role in the game can only be affected by one single thing so if you're shooting someone if they're in cover it's minus one and that's the only thing that will ever affect a shooting role in the game and it's 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 not I, I think it's this kind of game is not going to be for everyone but i think for a certain type of person like me it will kind of it will kind of feel different and it will feel like it perhaps does something that weren't able to get elsewhere on the, the sort of topic of lore and story world like if i think about you know, a couple of my favourite games, like for example, Song of Blades and Heroes tells you, you know, this is fantasy slash uh, medieval, but have at it, you know, we're not going to give you a world, we're not going to give you any of this. Then you look at like Joe McCulloch's games who you've mentioned already, so Frostgrave gives you the world in the setting, but doesn't micromanage it, and then we go to, you know, something like Warhammer Fantasy, we've got maps, we've got canon, we've got fully developed lore, where would you say that the Doomed fits into that sort of um spectrum so uh, this is a term that i've heard I, th- I think this is something that grant howitt said the rpg designer but if, I'll, I'll give him credit even if it's not not necessarily his words um he said something about um ha- enjoying games that had um not very much lore but lots of flavor or lots of tone so you can i, I wanted to create a world where you, there's no maps or timelines or like specifics but there's enough kind of like flavorful little bits thrown at you that you kind of get a sense of oh this is how this world is and it sparks enough creativity that you can kind of think well you look at the world you think well i'm going to make a warband that kind of looks like this and this feels like it fits so like the factions for instance are all kind of the faction descriptions are like maybe two lines of flavor text for each faction and like a little line of flavor text under each of the units but i wanted to keep them all broad enough so that you could use whatever miniatures you want to kitbash at the table so like there's mentions of like one of the warmander called exiles and it says well these are these are the only like alien faction they've these are like exiles from the stars that have ended up on this horrible world but i didn't want to say oh and and here are the 12 different types of alien species and here's what they look like because if i leave that open then you know you can use like your predator miniature from the predator movie game if you want or you can use uh, some you can use like just put a tyranid head on top of a, a space marine body and say that's my alien you can kind of do whatever you want. And I think that's where I kind of sit on that middle ground where I like all that flavor and stuff of, of a game like 40K where it feels like this world has a very particular tone. But um, I wanted to keep the openness of something like, something like, like say, Songs of Blade and Heroes where it's like, use whatever you want. Use whatever fantasy things you have lying around. What are some of the, the baddies or monsters that we, we might find ourselves fighting in this game? 
So again, the um, the big sort of horrors that you're facing, um, I wanted to keep the descriptions broad enough that you could kind of find a way to use whatever monsters or big like units that you had around. So they generally fall into like, there's if you're playing a campaign of this game, there's going to be like five, called five dooms. So these are five ways that the campaign will end if you don't achieve your own agenda. Um, so there's like hunger, ruin, domination. I should have got these up before I started saying this. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and two more, um, oblivion and, and, uh, famine, I want to say hunger. I, I it, it, there's five of them anyway. And, uh, they're kind of like exemplified in the horrors. So the, the first one that you have is just called the devourer. And it has like, if you look at its stat line, it's got some, it's got big claws and it can spit digestive acid at you. And when I made this horror, I, I made like a kind of a bug, bug like kind of creature with like this big like fly like style mouth, um, and that's kind of how I'd pictured it in my head. But then for the miniature photography in the book, um, we got Anna Planchak of um, Gardens of Hecate, and um, she did a um, her version of the Devourer was like this like three headed wolf, um, like big like muscular creature, and it looked completely different to mine, but they both fit into this theme of the devourer and um yeah so so the horrors each have a each have enough flavor hopefully to get you inspired to model something and in, and in terms of their rules they all they all break the rules in one way or another and i wanted them to feel almost like like when you fight a boss monster in a video game i guess where you part of it is just fighting it but part of it is also working out how it works and working out is there something i need to do specifically to take this on um so yeah, that they've been fun to work on, and there's 36 of those in the book, so plenty to go with. Plenty bodies to fit. The devourer presumably is the hungriest one. Yeah, I would imagine name. so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, what about uh, well, the playing size that we might optimally want to use, the dice type, and the time it would take us to to play a game. So your warbands are it's it's kind of designed for 28 millimeter, but to be honest, because there's no measuring. As long as you're using like the same scale, you could do it with whatever you wanted to do, really, as long as they're individually based. Um, but if you're playing with that 28 mil, I've been playing on either two by two or three by three foot tables. Um, so I wanted it to be something you could just throw out onto a, a kind of ordinary size table quite easily. Um, you do probably want to have quite a lot of terrain. Um, because there's no measuring positioning is much more important than like distance so it's not so much of a factor of how far away is that unit across open ground it's more what's the route look like to get there because movement is restricted by like obstacles and cover so it's more about getting lines of sight and sort of being in a strong position than it is about distances um but the warbands themselves when they start out it's probably going to be four or five models maybe six if you go a certain way um so you could very easily get started on this with you know four four or five miniatures each um and a big nasty thing to go in the middle mm. and how long will that take us and what are we actually rolling so oh yeah d6s all all the way um it's all d6s and um in terms of time this is the one that i've never quite it, it, it does vary um you can you can get through some games pretty quickly um i would say at an absolute maximum you're going to be done within an hour, I would say, quite easily. Um, but I've, when I've been playing it with someone who's already played it, you can quickly get through something even in like half an hour, 45 minutes, quite easily. Mm, cool, cool. 
Um, aye, I'm really looking forward to to checking that out. Like I say, it, it caught my eye in the magazine. Um, so it's it's through Osprey. Am, am I right in saying that? That's right. Yeah, Osprey. So um, so it's with them now. The game the game is all finished. Um, I think the, last I heard, August was the, was the date. Yeah. That's what um, I've not heard any changes. Um, so it's it's just uh, it's just just the waiting game now, which which is which is painful for me because um. It, it it feels like this has been kind of a long time coming for me. Um, like I say, it was, well, I mean, I guess three years ago was when I kind of started working on it. So that's quite a quick turnaround um, for a game to come from scratch. But um, but yeah, it, it, it feels like, um, I, know, I know a few people who are keen to get it. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the release. What do you do with a release? Like what happens? Do you, do you go on some podcast, do some videos? Uh, your, your own podcast, last I checked, you've not had an episode out on that for a while. Will you get that back on the road for a wee bit? Or? Yeah, so so the thing is, um, some of the games that I make, I publish myself and some of them I've done through other publishers just for whatever's the best fit for that particular game. Um, this is an interesting one because it was my first kind of foray into miniature war games. I thought I want to... I want to do this with somebody who who knows what they're doing, basically, and um, who people will perhaps recognise. Um, so that, that that's how I kind of ended up with Osprey. And yeah, the, the interesting thing about this is a lot a lot of the release, um, a lot of the work now is being done being done by them, which is great for me. But um, yeah, like you said, the main thing for me is to be um, speaking to people who want to talk about it. And um, there's been a few articles, like they say, there's the one in War Games Illustrated this month. Um, that I've that I've written for them. Um, in terms of the podcast, that's always been kind of like a little bit of a sideline for me. I do like video streams as well, so I've been doing those a bit more lately instead. Um, but I do try and keep um, writing games as my main thing. I'm, I'm not looking to make the all, all of the YouTube and podcast stuff is definitely a sideline for me. So I kind of do them. I do them when I feel like I've got something interesting to do, rather than I feel like if I said I'd do one every week, they'd uh, they'd end up pretty dire <laughs> pretty quickly. I mean, the the podcast sounds really good. Like, is that something that you'd done before? Like, when did you actually launch that show? Um, I think I did the first series of the podcast. Um, I think it was, I think that may have been during the lockdown um, mm-hmm. as well. Again, just looking for anything to, to do. Um, no, no, no. I think it was just before because it was, it was around the release of Electric Bastion Land, which was 2019. That was when that kickstart happened. So I think it was the original podcast there was a um was a stretch goal for that kickstarter now i remember mm. so yeah it's been going for about three years but I, I i do six episode series and i'm following the um the tv model well at least the uk tv model of maybe not doing as many series um i'd, I'd rather do a few series and keep them limited but make them all good like you say rather than have like um, hundreds of episodes and i'm not especially proud of some of them so it's, it's definitely something i want to go back to but i'd like to have something something new to talk about on there and something a bit different to do yeah i mean it, it sounds like you you know you're really professional sounding on the show like and there's a good audio quality um so i was really impressed that you know i do hear a lot of podcasts where the content can be good but you know, sometimes maybe their audio quality will let them down or there's there's other wee issues going on, but the show seems to be really polished. I wondered if maybe that was something that you had a, a background in as well. 
Uh, well, I was I was going to say no, but I, when I went to university, I did um, music technology. So I, I learned all that stuff and then promptly forgot it all when I went into a completely different area <laughs> of work. Yeah. Um, but um, but no, I, so I guess I at least know how far to put my head away from a microphone. Um, but no, it's, I, I think that the thing is, I think going up even a small bit from like a free microphone that comes with a computer makes a huge difference. So I don't I don't have any especially fancy gear here. But I think just just little things like that make a big difference because, yeah, like you say, there's a few. There's some podcasts that I love, but I listen to them in spite of the quality <laughs> rather yeah, than. I... Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was I was keen to avoid that. Do you, uh, I mean, I know you say you were earning on the side of streaming and video and stuff like that recently, but, you know, do you see podcasting as um, quite an important thing in the hobby? It's it obviously had a big boost uh, during the pandemic, which a lot of other mediums did as well, on, online mediums. But, you know, how do you sort of think of podcasting in relation to this hobby? Well, weirdly, because I, I used to listen to podcasts every day on my commute to work. Um, but during the lockdown, obviously, I um, well, at, at the time, that, that that was actually the first week of lockdown was the first week I went self-employed um, writing RPGs. So I, I went from commuting to work every day and listening to podcasts to working from home. So if anything, my, my podcast um, listening has just like plummeted uh, during lockdown and after that. But I think... I think they it's important to have all that variety because I know, I know some people really like the video content and that's how they absorb a lot of this stuff. I personally sort of have a real soft spot for like blogs and like longer form stuff and some of the stuff that's going like in newsletters, uh, in like Substack newsletters and stuff nowadays. Um, but it, ha- having, having it spread between those things, like having like videos, blogs and podcasts all kind of presenting the view in a slightly different way I, th- I think it's really important to have kind of all three options because then people will kind of find the one that's the best fit for them is, is mm-hmm. my view anyway yeah i mean we did a an episode just recently about well i mean part of it was about podcasting uh, and just you know the benefits of creating on and whether whether it's a good thing for somebody or you know whether they want to do a bit of social media or youtube or whatever um, because I think creating content around your hobby, no matter what you're doing, there's a lot of benefits of it. You know, the community, the accountability and stuff like that. And obviously you'll see folk doing really well on, for example, something like Instagram. But I think podcasting is massive or one of the massive advantages over that is the fact that like you own the access to your audience with a podcast or with a blog, you know, with a peerless website. Whereas if you're on a third-party social media site, that could all just disappear tomorrow if the company who owns it decide to pull the plug. It's unlikely YouTube will go away tomorrow, but your audience is still kind of owned or your access to your audience is still kind of owned by that other company. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when when there's been... Well, I think I feel like there's been a constant crisis over like Twitter from like the day it was born. But I think like especially lately, I've seen a lot of people talk about moving away from it and they almost like feel feel like they're stuck and they feel like they can't leave this platform even though they don't like what it represents anymore or even just like how it works with its algorithm and things like that and so yeah that I, I'm always very cautious about placing any sort of getting too invested on anything like that, that that's owned by an external agency I think mailing lists are fantastic for that reason because email is pretty safe to say email is not going anywhere um, and yeah. people change their emails um more rarely than they move house is it the fact that i've heard recently so i think if you can get people's emails you've got kind of a nice 
regular way of contacting them. So um, interesting. I've seen since I started my email newsletter with Substack, I've noticed that that has been sort of growing more quickly than the blog and more quickly than um, YouTube, more quickly than um, the podcast. So I think there's definitely something in that at the minute. Um, but the problem is these things always change, isn't it? So by, by the time this podcast comes out, that's probably going to be uh, <laughs> not useful knowledge. No, not at all. Not at all. I, th- I always like kind of geeking out on these things and... Um... You know, it's a it's a topic that interests me a lot. Um, so speaking of like the email list and that, uh, for the listener who wants to keep up with you to see what games you've created already, and of course to to get the doomed when it comes out as well, where can they go to to subscribe to your mailing list to find your podcast and any other information? Yeah, so if you go to bastionland.com, um, all of that stuff is in the sidebar. So there is a Patreon. There is a newsletter with Substack. There is a Discord server. There is a Twitter account, but don't use that because I don't really use that anymore. Uh, there is a YouTube channel. There is a Twitch stream, and there is a podcast. So something for everybody, but it's all at bastionland.com. Mm-hmm.